Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming, and welcome to the LSE. And welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event on truth. It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speakers. We have Professor Simon Blackburn from Trinity College, Cambridge, and Professor Pascal Angel from the University of Geneva. Uh, Simon has had an enormous influence on contemporary philosophy, particularly through his work in ethics. He's also well known as a spokesperson for philosophy in the public sphere and has authored many, many books, including two books on tonight's subject of truth. Pascal is known for his work on philosophy of logic, language and epistemology, and he is one of the most important analytic philosophers working in mainland Europe today. Like Simon, Pascal is the author of far too many books that I could mention, and at least three of these deal directly with tonight's subject of truth. So I'm going to structure our discussion around three main questions. Firstly, why talk about truth? Secondly, how might a theory of truth affect... um, Excuse me, how might... um, Three questions. Why talk about truth at all? Secondly, most importantly... What is truth? And last of all, how might your theory of truth affect your philosophy in other areas like ethics, aesthetics, or political philosophy? I'll take questions from the audience at each stage after Pascal and Simon have presented their views. So to get us started, please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Simon Blackburn and Professor Pascal Angel. So when we think of a philosophy event on truth and think about philosophers studying this uh, subject, many people will say, well, truth, isn't that a kind of outdated or outmoded idea? Um, It's sort of the idea we're imposing our um, ideas or values on on other people. Um, So I wondered if Simon or or, um, Pascal can say something in response to that sort of criticism that... It's very funny that that there is this kind of criticism because it used to be the central topic. People went into philosophy uh, onto other fields to know the truth, to know what truth is, and to study a lot of truths. I mean, we are in the London School of Economics, which is a a scientific school where people learn a lot of of truths. So, what would why should it be sort of uh, bizarre or recherché? Or I believe that. That's because there is something which uh, Bernard Williams Williams has spotted quite well. Uh, On the one hand, uh, we are very suspicious of truth these these days as a concept, with a capital T, as you said, uh, as as a sort of big notion which looks sort of religious. Uh, In particular, everyone remembers that uh, when Pilate meets Jesus, Jesus says, uh, Pilate asks him, asks Jesus, uh, who are you? And the guy says, uh, I am the truth. Uh, so that looks pretty much religious. And also there is this uh, suspicion that talking about truth is 
very, very dogmatic, that it leads you to, to, to sort of separate off people from others and not let uh, other people uh, open their mouths. So, so there is a sort of shut up uh, which, which goes with, with truth. And I think that, that goes with this sort of suspicion. On the other hand, it is very bizarre because uh, people are looking for truth. Uh, people uh, complain when they are not given uh, the truth about what they eat in their plates at the restaurant, when their bank account uh, is not properly attuned, and so on and so forth. And so why is it that we are so happy to have truth in, uh, in the ordinary life, but so suspicious when a philosopher starts talking about it? Okay. Sam, would you agree with that? Uh, uh, yes, I agree very much. I mean, um, you know, you want the uh, timetable for your aeroplane to tell you truly what time the plane is supposed to leave. You want the menu to tell you truly what you're about to eat. Uh, in everyday individual context, there's no problem about truth um, for reasons we come to. And that makes it odd that suspicion about the notion became so prevalent. I think it was characteristic of postmodernism, of the intellectual climate, perhaps more especially in France, perhaps than England, I don't know. Um, of England the, now is the capital. <laughs> um, of, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of atmosphere of suspicion. Um, probably the best-known Anglo-American philosophy, uh, philosopher to voice that was... Uh, the late Richard Rorty, uh, who wrote many books in which uh, truth was some kind of uh, opponent or enemy, um, he called himself a pragmatist, and the relationship between practice and truth, pragma pragmatics and truth, is, of course, a very interesting one, which I hope we say more about later. Um, but I've always found it very odd that Rorty made himself a crusader against the abstract notion of truth, and I'd like to make a distinction between worrying about the nature of truth, the notion of truth, and worrying about attitudes which people can take up. So a lot of the suspicion Pascal mentioned, I think, was basically hostility to dogmatism, to uh, the supposition that we've got it right, finally, that we are better at truth than other people, um, that there are only a certain elite who are worth listening to about things, and so on. And all those I absolutely applaud are bad attitudes. You need to be democratic. Um, you need freedom of speech. You need freedom of opinion. You need to have a marketplace of ideas. So any um, claim to truth that is also a claim to closed discussion is, of course, dangerous. And I think it deserves a certain amount of suspicion. Um, but the target there should be certainty or dogmatism or myopia close-mindedness, uh, in some uh, varieties, faith, um, but not truth itself. Um, and the reason why I think truth survives is that it's a very little notion, which perhaps we'll come back to. Interesting. So there's an idea that perhaps philosophers have brought this on themselves. I wonder if, Pascal, you would agree that this is a, a trouble of philosophy's own making. Simon is pointing the finger at France, and you're pointing it back at, at the English. 
Well, uh, to reinforce one of uh, Simon's points, uh, it's true that uh, there is a, there are a lot of confusions which have come from postmodernism, but um, I believe that those confusions are not special to postmodernism. They start uh, actually from basically romantic, romantic philosophy, uh, Nietzsche, and postmodernism is just a, sky, a kind of a footnote added to uh, what um, a number of uh, 19th century philosophers said about, about truth and the, so the suspicions uh, started earlier. Um, but uh, it's the, the, the to, to give a sort of uh, idea about the, about the general context uh, think of since I'm coming from the French background think of uh, the way intellectuals reacted at the end of the 19th century uh, at the time of the Dreyfus affair at the time of the Dreyfus affair, the matter was truth. I mean, actually, the French writer Émile Zola uh, wrote a book which is called uh, Truth uh, in March. He's marching on, uh, which was on the front page. And uh, the intellectuals at that time cared a lot uh, for what truth is, but they did not question it. Whereas today, there is something else. Uh, and this something else certainly came with a, a suspicion for truth in the public domain, and not, on, not simply because it's an abstract philosophical concept which looks religious, and because some people have certain kind of attitude. But where I want to, to slightly uh, not disagree, but, but uh, say something else on, on your point, is that it seems to me that... Uh, there is a sort of suspicion against truth as a concept or as a property or as a notion in general. I mean, in the, sort of, in the philosophical sense, which comes from a very widespread relativistic attitude. I mean, the skeptic is someone who says that there are no truths. The relativist is someone who says that everyone has his own truths, everyone has his own point of view. And this sort of extremely, uh, uh, this extreme reluctance to use the notion of truth in an absolute sense, in the sense it's true that two and two plus four. I mean, I, when I was teaching philosophy for, for, the, for the kids at, at the secondary school, I even met one who said, are you sure that two plus two equals four? It, could, it might well be uh, not true. Uh, actually, he had read Descartes. Descartes says, actually, that God could have make it, yeah. made it, uh, could, could, could make it that two plus two equals five. Uh, that's a special, special French salt. Uh, so, that, that, so, so, no, but to come back to skepticism and, and, and relativism, it seems to me that the, the relativist and the skeptic about truth is not only a sort of professional philosopher, someone inspired by postmodernism or Nietzsche. That's the man on the street. I mean, many people uh, accept this kind of view. So the truth, just when, when we deal with the ordinary notion, seems to be uh, something which is sort of uh, at least uh, bizarre, uh, even though we use it. Yeah. Um, thank you, Pascal. I mean, uh, uh, two things. One is certainly uh, you're absolutely right to point back to Nietzsche, um, uh, Nietzsche said there are no facts, only interpretations. Of course, Nietzsche was a philologist and uh, to some extent a historian. And of course, in history, it becomes quite plausible to think that, you know, I might write a narrative like 
I mean, if I was Hilary Mantel, I might write a narrative of the court life of Henry VIII. Um, and it would be a picture, and it would be an interpretation. And, of course, it's, it's going to wait for another historian to come along and say something slightly different, to, to paint the picture differently, with different shadows, with different emphases, with different elements, perhaps. I might have missed out uh, everything to do with some aspect of the society at the time, and this other historian will then come and, and reinterpret events. Um, so I think uh, I'm particularly a suspicion of truth, I think, or suspicion of the idea of truth as correspondence with the facts, that that had a, any traction, any interest. Uh, actually, I think derived from the study of history, in, certainly in, uh, amongst the British idealists in the 19th century. Um, so, sure, um, there are no facts, only interpretations. That was a kind of slogan which I think then became the um, guiding slogan of postmodernism. And, of course, once you say that, then you start worrying about relativism because it'll seem that every, perhaps everybody has their own interpretation. And, again, if you look at, say, um, uh, the story of his, history, how history's been written, historiography, you'd find a very different kind of way of writing history, very different interpretations of events if you look back over, say, the last 50 years, let alone 150 years, uh, of historical writing. As people start to have different interests, they start to put the light in different places, the shade in different places. So I think relativism, um, if it's kind of a so the soil it grows in, is this awareness of the, um, the, the place of the interpreting mind, that is where the facts are not just given, they don't just shout at you or hit you, uh, they're, they're filtered through the interpretation of the mind, in this case of the historian, in other cases of the scientist, uh, then, you, then you get a kind of sympathy with relativism. But I'd like to pick up another thing Pascal said, which I think was very telling. When you think of something like the Dreyfus case, which of course tore France apart in the, in the late 19th century, nobody's worried about the notion of truth. What they're worried about is whether Dreyfus sold secrets to the Germans. Um, the prosecution alleged that he did, the defense alleged that he didn't, and that tore France apart. You didn't have to have a concept of truth. The, the question wasn't, what's the nature of truth? The question was, did this man sell secrets to the Germans? And you can ask that question without employing the notion of truth. I just did. Did this man? And that was Pontius Pilate's problem. Um, as a judge, uh, his job was to decide whether the person in front of him was guilty of some kind of sedition, of claiming to be a king when he wasn't, or something like that. That was his job. His job wasn't to ask what truth is. Of course, Jesus brought it on himself, as Pascal mentioned, by saying, I am the truth. Say, so what the hell does that mean? Um, and, uh, uh, and that perhaps prompted um, Pilate to stop being a judge, which was his job, and start being not a very good philosopher, which wasn't his job. <laughs> Thanks. So it seems like there's the broad agreement between the two of you that uh, against uh, being critical of a kind of relativism, um, and would that be true of most philosophers in general, Pascal? 
Well, uh, relativism, relativism seems to be very attractive given that the, the opposite position, absolutism, uh, looks also uh, looks very absurd. I mean, everyone knows the story of the Frenchman who comes to London from the first time and says these Brits are completely crazy. They give names of defeats to their streets. Uh, of course, when you reestablish the, the, the the correct view. I mean, uh, Trafalgar is not a defeat uh, for for the British. Uh, Waterloo is not a defeat for the British. So for the French, it's a defeat. For the uh, the, the British, it's a victory. Uh, once you you, you put you, you set up the parameter, uh, the truth uh, becomes plain. So we 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 are able to sort of de-relativize. Uh, the, the relativity of defeat and so, but many people don't take this sort of move. Uh, they, they seem to consider that there is a sort of world which is the world of the British, who have their own victories, and for them, it's true that Waterloo is a victory. For the French, uh, it's true that, uh, say, for instance, uh, Jena or, uh, or Austerlitz uh, is, is is a victory, and they are sort of trapped, locked into their own worlds. As soon as you say, well, there is this parameter and you set up the parameters correctly, relativism seems uh, to, to disappear. Uh, so there, 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 but nevertheless, it's still extremely attractive because we, we have the idea that someone who says something is sort of speaking is not only his own mind, his or her own mind, but also his or her own world. I mean, all the commitments are sort of carried with what the person says, with, with, with their assertion. And so it's, it's correct that there is this, this debate uh, also in philosophy. Um, this debate in philosophy between relativists and absolutists is not settled so easily. I mean, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to, 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 to see exactly where things go wrong with relativism. I mean, some people, for instance, are very happy to accept local relativisms. I mean, uh, truths which are truths for you and truths for me in certain matters say matters of taste, sometimes in, in matters of aesthetic appreciation, uh, even sometimes in matter of religion. Uh, even though religion carries uh, truth, it's also, according to some people, carries a sort of inner world, I mean, it's a sort of Weltanschauung, as uh, some people far, farther east say. So uh, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's an issue. Uh, it, it's an issue. And what I want to say is, is to disagree slightly and start disagreeing slightly with, uh, with Simon. Uh, it seems to me that uh, it's not so easy uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to reject at least the intuitive appeal of absolutism. I mean, there is, just as there is an appeal of relativism, there is an appeal of absolutism. In particular, uh, when we talk about different kinds of truths, or when we say, when we say that, uh, for instance, John said the truth, Mary said the truth, uh, David Cameron said the truth, uh, Krugman said the truth, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, said the truth, and so on, there is, it seems, something which they say which 
is in common to them. Even though they don't speak the truth, so to say, with the same mouth and, 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 and in the same way. So it seems that we can generalize and say what is said is true. Uh, truth is to be looked after. It's the aim of belief. It's the aim of inquiry. So it's not completely absurd to say that there is something, there is this, this word abstract. And so, of course, it's very bizarre for Pilate to say, uh, to, 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 to be in front of Jesus who says that he is the truth. But Pilate was not, uh, was not afraid of Jesus if, he, if Jesus had said, I'm the king of the Jews. When he said, I'm the king of the Jews, that just was a falsity for Pilate. Uh, and so, th- there is an appeal of absolutism. Actually, I think that uh, actually, maybe truth is a more robust property than, than just, as you suggested, something that you assert about Dreyfus, for instance. I'm going to pause you there because we're going to get into this uh, different yeah. question in, in just a moment. Um, but before we do, there seems to be a consensus emerging, um, at least between our two speakers, that... Um, Relativism is something to be to be resisted, and, and it seems that that's sort of quite a general attitude among philosophers. Um, but we want to take some questions from our audience, so um, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. Yes, gentleman down in the front. That, yeah. Thank you very much. My question is really opening up another aspect. Why truth is important to us is for ethical reasons, for telling the truth. There's a very interesting example given at the beginning of Professor Felipe Fernandez Ernesto's book on truth, where he talks about the consequences of telling children about Santa Claus and then telling them that that's not really true. Uh, with some rather plausible examples of how that can destroy trust in adult society. And there is an argument that uh, the ability to tell the truth and tell the difference between telling the truth and telling things that are false or believed to be false is at the root of a healthy society. Yes, I, I'm not familiar with the, um, the, the, the passage about Santa Claus. Um, it sounds to me as though you might be rather patronizing about children. Children are not, I think, generally damaged by having been told about Santa Claus, but, but I don't know exactly what his, his claim was. Um, you're right, of course. I mean, sincerity, telling, uh, speaking your mind as it is, rather than deceiving or... Um, being evasive, a picture of David Cameron there, I think. Um, uh, uh, um, that is undoubtedly an important virtue. And, of course, that's, a, that's one of the things, that if you, if you believe that P, you ought to say P. You oughtn't to go around telling people not P. Um, so that, that's undoubtedly true. If I could just um, pick up something, I mean, I think Pascal is right. There is this um, sort of dilemma about relativism versus absolutism. But relativism is in many respects useless. I think this is an important thing to say. So, um, um, I mean, suppose, for, uh, let's take an ethical issue. Suppose, um, suppose I'm passionately opposed to fox hunting. I think fox hunting is a really bad thing. It ought to be banned. It's a good thing that it's illegal and so on and so on. 
Uh, and somebody else is, let's say, Pascal, is a passionate defender of fox hunting and thinks it's part of the British and French, French way of life and it should be, and foxes are vermin and this is an efficient way to, and so on and so on. You can see how the debate goes. And then suppose our chairman comes in as a peaceable person and says, um, oh, well, Simon's got his truth. Fox hunting is bad and should be banned. Pascal's got his truth. Fox hunting is good and should be allowed. Um, that's your truth. That's your truth. And that's all there is to it. Um, I think it's important to realize that's an absolutely useless contribution <laughs> to the moral debate because I want fox hunting banned in, in this story and he wants it allowed. And, of course, we might be able to find a compromise you know, ban it on Sundays and allow it other days or something or uh, whatever we might do. Or we might be able to find a modus vivendi, a way of living together. Um, but as it stands, it's a polar opposition, and the opposition isn't going to go away because somebody says, that's your truth, that's his truth. That's just a useless contribution to the dilemma, the practical dilemma, which is whether to allow fox hunting. And I think it's very important that even in morals and aesthetics where there's more sense of your taste, my taste, de gustibus non disputandum, and so on, um, if you've got a real disagreement, it's a disagreement, and it doesn't go away because somebody comes along and says, that's your truth, that's his truth. Um, you can learn to tolerate other opinions, but tolerating other opinions isn't the same as agreeing with them. Thanks. Let's take one more question. Uh, yes, um, at the back there. Sorry, um, the gentleman in front of you. Right. I want to turn question to say something is true or not true is question of the social context in which people pronounce upon the truth or untruth of something. And the reason why it may be important because the person, the forum in which truth is announced, actually confers some power. So just by saying whether Mary says something is true or Paul says something is not true for me, it just overlooks the question that is the social context in which truth is pronounced actually has, has some meaning. And it can only be reserved for certain person who occupies the position. Like, for example, whether a person is guilty of a crime mm -hmm. in a social context can only be done in a court of law. I, mean, I and you just pronouncing upon it has no <coughs> effect on it. Pascal, would you like to respond to that, that truth is dependent on a social context? Well, that's, that's uh, at the same time correct uh, and not, because um, it's true that just as any assertion in the ordinary life is relative most of the time to a context. I mean, there are very, very few truths which are, so to say, eternal in the sense of uh, Caesar passed the Rubicon, 2 plus 2 equals 4, uh, um, uh, the, the British Isles are isolated from the continent, probably an eternal truth. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> And so uh, 
there are very few truces of, of this sort. I mean, most of the time we speak in a certain context and there are words which, uh, as linguists say, shift you from one context to another. And if I say I'm hungry and if you say I'm hungry, we are saying the same truth, we are reporting the same content. But on the one, on the one hand, it's you. On the, uh, on, on the other hand, it's me. So it's not exactly the same thing which is said by, by both of us. So there is this notion of context in every uh, enunciation, every utterance of truth. Now, you're talking about social context. Well, uh, there are people who believe that truths are relative to various sorts of things. I mean, social context, cultures, languages, uh, ways of thinking, and so on. Uh, it seems to me that uh, that's quite correct. I mean, it's right. But does that prevent us from saying that certain sort of things are just plainly true or not? So are you saying that every truth is dependent on the social context, or are you saying that some are? I mean, it's true that, that in the case of Dreyfus, to, to come back again, I mean, it's true that many people uh, brought their interpretation of the, why, why Dreyfus was guilty. Uh, for, for some of them, it was because he was a Jew, then they were anti-Semite. Uh, others said that they had to defend the French state against, and so on and so forth. But uh, as, as Simon said, the fact whether... Dreyfus was guilty or not uh, escapes this. Now, if, we, if you talk indeed of truces of a very, very high level, things which have to do with the kind of theories that we have, it's true that they are trivially dependent on the theory. I mean, it, because they are theoretic. Thanks. Um, we want to uh, move on now um, to our second question, which is a topic that uh, Pascal just touched upon um, to do with absolutism and whether the statement such and such is true really commits you to something um, about objective reality or commits you to something in, in metaphysics. Um, and this may provoke a bit more disagreement um, than we've seen uh, so far. So we're going to allow Simon a little bit of time to um, start off and explain where he stands on that issue, and then Pascal will respond. Right. Well, um, let me collect my thoughts. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of what philosophers have thought about truth, and that, I think, helps to put my own views in, in some kind of context. I think the thumbnail sketch goes something like this. Um, it starts allegedly with Aristotle, who said that to say of what is that it is and of what is not that it is not is true. And that sounds right. Um, and that was sort of elevated into a theory, a so-called correspondence theory of truth, uh, people thought that what Aristotle was getting at was that truth was correspondence with the facts, and that was the right thing and the final thing to say about truth. Truth is correspondence with the facts. Um, this became more problematic. I've already sort of hinted at this, talking about Nietzsche, who said there are no facts, only interpretations. Um, it sounds fine to say that truth is correspondence with the facts if you've got a good epistemology of getting at the facts. If the facts, as it were, stood up and hit you with a boxing glove, then fine, you've got the facts, and then you've got your beliefs, and your beliefs are supposed to answer to the facts, and that's, 
that straightforward. Um, but as I mentioned, in the 19th century, a lot of people started to worry. They started to worry about the role of the interpreting mind in selecting facts, in describing facts. Um, and the, this became crystallized and what eventually became known as the sort of myth of the given. Uh, philosophers began to think that the given uh, just didn't exist. There was always the work of interpretation, uh, understanding, description, and those in turn were um, subject to, for example, linguistic forces, social forces, cultural forces. Uh, so there becomes a, a much more uh, a much more sympathy to the role of the interpreting mind in these areas, and the correspondence theory seemed to seem to ignore all that. The Two successors to the idea of correspondence were, first of all, the notion of coherence, and secondly, the notion of pragmatism. Um, the coherence theory of truth uh, took off from the idea that actually when you, even when you go and look at, say, an event, when you go and look at, you know, you go and look in your larder to see if there's any butter there, um, the looking is basically the arrival of another belief in your mind. Um, and so the idea becomes that you never actually confront your belief system with a, a fact. What you confront your belief system with is another belief. Uh, in this case, a belief no doubt formed in a, a, a valuable way. You went and looked. Um, but what happened when you went and looked was another belief entered your mind, a belief which for the moment you take as authoritative, namely that there's butter in the fridge. It is, of course, in a sense, a hypothesis because it may turn out that what looks like butter isn't. Uh, it may be some vile sort of margarine from Tesco's or um, something. Um, but for the moment, the looking gives you a, a, a right to think of there as being butter in the fridge. Um, whether it survives is a matter of how well it coheres with a whole mass of other beliefs which may come in. Uh, in the future, or which you may bring up in order to worry about it in the present. Um, so the idea became that the single belief is not the unit of truth, it's the whole theory, your whole worldview that stands, as it were, together. Um, and people started using metaphors like the web of belief. Um, uh, that's associated with the, uh, the mid-20th century philosopher Quine, but it's there in, for example, Joachim, writing at the beginning of the 20th century. At the same time, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, people started to ask, well, what's so good about a web of belief? Uh, what makes one web of belief better than another? And the answer came galloping in from America. Um, does it work? Uh, does it stand you in good stead? Uh, and that's the answer of pragmatism. Uh, the American pragmatist, Peirce, James, Dewey, um, came up with the idea that the ultimate test of any theory of truth or theory which purports to be true is going to be how well it works. And, um, uh, and that has various descendants to the, to the present day. So you get correspondence, coherence, pragmatism. Those are the three classic views about truth. The modern successor is deflationism, and this is quite hard for people to understand. So, just, just but well, it it ought to be quite simple, but it's actually quite hard. Um, 
the deflationist says, look, you're talking about truth as if it's a, a property, a, 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 a real property that some things have and some don't. And that sounds right. I mean, you know, so you've, probably most of you or some of you will have heard of the film, the hard, the hard the, or heard of the play, I'm sorry, Tom Stoppard's latest play, The Hard Problem. That's about consciousness. Well, people worry about consciousness. What is it? Who's got it? Do animals have it? And so on and so on. Do people who are locked in have it? That's a good thing to think and to worry about, I think. But truth may not be a property like consciousness, and the deflationist thinks it's not. What does the deflationist think? Well, he takes off from the view that it makes no difference whether you say Dreyfus was guilty or it's true that Dreyfus was guilty. Those two come to exactly the same thing. The introduction of the idea of it's true that doesn't change the assertion. Um, and this raises the question, is truth a topic at all? And deflation has said, no, it's not a topic. So when Pilate said, what is truth? The right answer to Pilate was, you tell me. Um, now, that doesn't mean you tell me what truth is. It means you tell me what you're interested in. What do you want to know about? And then suppose Pilate says, well, I want to know whether it's true that this guy's the king of the Jews. You say, well, okay, I'll tell you when that's true. It's true that this guy's the king of the Jews, if and only if this guy's the king of the Jews. And that's your job to go and find out. Um, so you get rid of concentration on truth in favor of concentrating on individual assertions. Now, Pascal's already hinted at something that, you know, seems to raise a difficulty for this sort of idea, because you might want to say everything Amartya Sen says is true and everything David Cameron says. Well, you wouldn't want to say that. Um, <laughs> and everything Paul Krugman says is true. Um, and the, uh, the deflationist says, yes, what that means is you're open to... You learn that David Cameron says that Samantha has size seven feet. If you think everything David Cameron says is true, then if David Cameron says that Samantha has five, size seven feet, then you go away thinking that Samantha has size seven feet. Um, that is, again, you wait and see. Uh, you, the generalization simply puts you in a position in which once you heard what David Cameron says, you go away believing one thing or another. If I tell you everything David Cameron says is false, and you believe me, because I'm a truthful sort of guy, um, then if David Cameron says Samantha has... Sam by the way, Samantha is David Cameron's wife. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, I believe. Um, uh, um, if David Cameron says she has size seven feet and you think everything David Cameron says is false, then you think Samantha doesn't have size seven feet. You may not know what size feet she's got, but they're not size seven. So, so basically, attributions of truth and falsity serve as kind of staging posts towards dealing with a particular topic. But the particular topics you deal with don't involve the notion of truth. Well, that's the deflationist view about truth, to which I'm very sympathetic. But I'm also quite sympathetic to pragmatism, so I'm very complicated. <laughs> Thanks very much. So Simon's told us a story in the history of philosophy which begins with a correspondence theory of truth. The truth is corresponding to the facts. 
uh, and later philosophers thought that perhaps that wasn't true and instead truth is cohering with other beliefs and later philosophers said that truth is what's useful to believe and, and you're suggesting that you're halfway between that position and a more, even more radical deflationist position. Well, Pascal, would you want to go all the way? Does that sound like philosophical progress to you or is there a place where you would want to, to get well, off? There is, of course, something which is sort of very seducive wisdom in, in what uh, Simon says. Uh, the idea is um, never go into second-order questions about what would be the relationships between truths and something else. Truths and the world, truths and other truths, truths and success or truths and, and, and practical utility. Just keep an extremely con simple concept which just is summarized, if I, am, if I uh, understand well, it can be summarized as it's true that P is just equivalent to P. If it's true that London is in England, then London is in England. And then you move back and London is in England is true. I mean, when someone asserts something, if he says, and what I say is true, is just sort of redundant and is not uh, saying anything more, it seems. So it seems. So it seems that there is nothing more to truth than that. And we just have to look at matters of fact, as David Hume uh, would, would, would call them, or if it's not a matter of fact, um, matters of ideas or places, things having to do, for instance, for mathematical truth. So it's very seducive. But I think it is, uh, in a large part, a, a very difficult idea, uh, not only because, as I mentioned, it seems that the concept of truth can go, is not simply a list or a series of matters of fact that we could just assert. Uh, London is in England, uh, David Cameron is a fine prime minister, uh, Matteo Renzi is too, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it, we, 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 are, we want also to generalize uh, over those truths, and we want to say that there is something which is true about what I said about David Cameron, Uh, and something which is also true about what I said about Matteo Renzi, the, the Italian prime minister. So these second-order questions happen very often. It's, of course, they, they, open, they, they happen very often in philosophy. I mean, if you think simply of the famous, of, of the, the, the notorious problem of the existence of the external world and the skeptical problem. I mean, it, there you have a question about whether your beliefs about your surroundings, about what you perceive, and so on, are correct or not, whether there is not some sort of evil demon or some sort of matrix in which you are located which prevents you from uh, having uh, correct beliefs. So there are moments in, in life which are not just as simple and as sort of a, 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 a coffee house uh, sort of conversation that Simon seems to believe uh, that, 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 that they have, um, where we, we want to ask about our beliefs. Now, Aristotle was quite aware of this. I mean, he said it's not because we think 
something which is true, that we are saying something which is true, but that's because there is something in the world which is true. So he used this word because, and he suggests there that there is a certain sort of relationship, because, which is either a causal or an explanatory relation, which accounts for the fact that we say things which are true, and they are true in virtue of there being certain kind of items which make them true. So it seems to me that even if you're a deflationist in a sort of easy way or queasy way, uh, as some people who want to be uh, uh, quasi-realists have it, uh, even though we have this very simple concept, it's very hard to get rid of the idea of a fact. Now, it's correct what uh, Simon said. It's very hard to implement, to explain what this notion of fact is. But we, 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 we could also use different sort of other notions. I mean, uh, certain truths seem to be uh, explained or grounded, if I want to use this word, in empirical matters of fact. Others seem to be grounded in other kind of fact. I mean, think of mathematical truths. Uh, they are certainly not grounded as uh, John Stuart Mill or some empiricist philosophers thought in empirical matters. I mean, it's uh, the, 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 the fact that there are three glasses on this table maybe not just an aggregation or a sort of perception of three objects. It may be an abstract matter. But then, if that's the case, then there are certain kind of necessities or certain kinds of domains which are objective in themselves. Think also, for instance, about science uh, and mathematics. Uh, Mathematics is applied to, to, to natural science. I mean, we would not be able to do mathematics, uh, to, 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 to do physics, if we had no mathematics. Now, are numbers, are the entities of mathematics, are they existing? Well, not in the sense of ordinary objects. So what I want to suggest is that there is a kind of objectivity which pertains to various domains, maybe not exactly in the same way, but this kind of objectivity makes truth in each domain robust, maybe less robust in certain domains as in other domains. And one of my problems with deflationism is that it sort of gives you a sort of a completely flattened view of the universe. It's true that there is that this desk is 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 yellow. It's true that there are three glasses on on this table, and deflationism has no means to distinguish various kinds of objectivity in different sorts of domain. So there is a risk, which I'm afraid, uh, if we do not. Uh, care about uh, about it if not if we're not cautious of going back to some kind of relativism uh, in uh, uh, smuggling in some kind of relativism in the idea that well truth is a matter of assertion what I assert what you assert I assert in the truth care about your truth don't care about mine mind your own truth <laughs> uh, can I can I just please. have a quick uh, yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic with your problems. It's just I'm not sure they're problems about truth. Um, that is, I do believe they're very different domains of inquiry. Ethics is not science. Science is not mathematics. Mathematics is not history, and so on. And the formation of opinion seems to be much more constrained um, in some domains than in others. 
So to take the most extreme, in math- there are no two ways of thinking about, say, the natural numbers. Um, two plus two is four. That's the end of it. Uh, when Descartes said that God could have uh, arranged it otherwise, I think the only real response is to drop your jaw. So <laughs> how? Um, and, uh, and, of course, some philosophers try to, to, to make that out to be a matter of definition, a trivial matter. Um, which is one possible approach to it. But whatever it is, it's fixed. There's no two opinions. At the other end of the spectrum, you might get something like pure taste, um, you know, somebody who prefers um, one kind of music to another, and the other person prefers the other. A says, I don't know, jazz is better than um, romantic classical. The other person says romantic classical is better than jazz, blah blah Why bother? Their, their difference of opinion is, um, as it were, prominent. It's up in the shop window. And there seem to be rather few constraints because each person has their own preferences. In between, there are things like history, as I've already mentioned. Um, then there's natural science itself, where opinion does seem to be very constrained. You know, there's, uh, there's only one good kind of physics, and there's probably only one good kind of investigation of, say, medicine, although medicine, of course, attracts its charlatans and its madmen. Um, so there's, there are different degrees of um, certainty um, and different degrees of convergence of opinion in different domains. And so I agree entirely with Pascal about that, but I'm not sure that it translates into a different notion of truth for different domains. Um, and this is a, an ongoing debate in, in contemporary philosophy. Um, there are people who think it does translate into a different notion of truth in different domains, and other people say, no, you can't... I mean, there are various tricksy reasons for finding that very difficult um, to do with logic and inference and so on. Um, so I, I, I prefer to keep truth as bare as possible and shovel all the problems of epistemology, of fixing opinion, of certainty or lack of certainty back onto the topic that we're talking about. And some topics, it's easier to settle opinion than other topics. Pascal, would you like to respond? Uh, well, uh, uh, my suggestion was not that there are different notions of truth. Uh, I would prefer to say something, I mean, I, I believe that there is one core notion which uh, is sort of inevitable. But what I would rather say is that uh, the way in, in which the, 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 this notion of truth uh, is, so to say, realized, uh, and the kind of explanation that we can give of the kind of facts, because I want to still use this notion of fact. I mean, I'm not so uh, unhappy with it. It's just that we have to define it in a sort of more precise way. And not, uh, of course, there are many difficulties with the notion of fact in philosophy. But there are different sort of relationships between facts and truths, depending on the domain. And the way I would put it would be a rather in terms of the notion of knowledge. I would rather say that depending on various domains, uh, there are various sort of notions of knowledge. Of course, knowledge entails truth. If you, if you know something, then what you know is by definition true. But there are various ways of knowing. And provided that we have knowledge, 
We have, we, we, we have truths, but this is not necessarily realized in the same way in different domains. One thing, for instance, which I like to think about is literary knowledge. It's a sort of special case which many people uh, believe do not exist. I mean, there are many philosophers who don't think that when you read George Eliot, uh, you are learning anything, uh, anything that you don't already know. But I, I think that if we can show that there is something like literary knowledge, and that it's not the same kind of knowledge that the one that you get from mathematics or from history or physics, then uh, you, have a, you, you start having a sense of those various domains of objectivity. But I don't want to say that those domains of objectivity sort of spread or scatter the notion of truth itself. Um, let's take a response from Simon, and then we want to take some questions from our audience. I, I think we're probably disagreeing less than I thought, because if they don't, um, I mean, just for the, I mean, obviously what we say about, say, the capacity of literature to, develop, to deliver truth is very mm. interesting. I mean, I, I've just finished reading three million words of Proust, um, <laughs> and I feel I've learned a lot about, for example, jealousy. Um, very nasty subject, which Proust treats marvelously. Um, I think it's probably psychological knowledge, so one might worry about whether literary uh, exercises give you knowledge which isn't also there in, say, empirical psychology, but that's another matter. But the question is whether the difference of different domains spreads into different notions of truth, and it seems to me we're closer to agreeing than it may sound, because... You, you want a core notion. Well, my core notion contains, contains notions such as correspondence and, and notion, and, and oh, notion of fact. Yeah. That's where we disagree. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a colleague of mine, Crispin Wright, puts it, there's a platitude, truth is correspondence with the facts. The question is what you make, whether you can make that into a theory, and I'm mm. suspicious of that. Yeah. It's not denying that truth is correspondence with the fact. That's obviously the right thing to say. Um, but can you make that into a, a full-scale epistemology or theory which settles problems like absolutism and relativism? And I don't think you can. Well, uh, take literature. I think that there is something like an epistemology or a theory of knowledge for literature, uh, and that it works uh, at least for certain parts of uh, literary writings. Okay, so on that point of disagreement, let's take some questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, right in the centre there, the uh, red shirt, yeah, pink shirt. Okay, <clears throat> this is possibly a bit technical. Um, so... What about instances where our beliefs in some sense might be made up by the truth? Okay? And this can be in a fairly trivial, put together in a fairly trivial way. So let's say you and I are talking about the gentleman in the red shirt. And in order for us to be having our discussion, in order to be having this, this thing where we might have a disagreement or any of those sorts of things, where we, we might raise questions about whether or not it's true, the things which we're asserting about the man with the red shirt, it's still the case that there's a man with a red shirt, and it's necessarily the case that the man with the red shirt is the man we're talking about. So the fact that it's true that we're talking about a man with a red shirt's re a requirement for us to have any of the other sort of relativized disagreements we might have, how does that have... I mean, what sort of bearing does that have on a kind of deflationary account of truth? Um, 
I think you're absolutely right. I mean, any any conversation is going to go, go on against a set of pre- against the background of a set of presuppositions, um, and I think that's a very important point in epistemology. It's one of the points that coherent theorists of truth like to stress. Um, I'm not sure that the I'm not sure it affects the notion of truth itself. I think it's a very important point about conversation and inquiry that there's always presuppositions that you take for granted. Um, there's no such thing as the blank slate or the blank mind. Any conversation you come to, you come to with a heavily prepared mind. Your mind has been getting prepared for that conversation for, in my case, 70 years, in your case, something less. Um, so, so there's no blank mind. There's, a, there's always presuppositions. Um, However, it's one of the glories of our minds that we can always back off and turn our attention back to the presuppositions. So um, I'm, I'm not sure how we do that in the case of red shirt, but I can imagine somebody saying, well, is it really a shirt or is it perhaps a, um, you know, some sort of garment? Maybe it's a jalabar if you get up and it sort of goes down to the floor or something. Um, so, you know, one can, one, can, one can back off. One can devote, you know, turn one's attention to the presuppositions. And, of course, that's what great science often does. I mean, you know, Einstein turned his attention to the presupposition that, um, uh, that the speed of light would be different depending on the different velocity of the sources of light, and it turned out not to be true. Um, so classical physics gave way, and that's uh, you know the part of the great imaginative science is to say, look at this presupposition. Bang! That was perhaps something we shouldn't have accepted, taken for granted, and we have wonderful, flexible minds and can often do that. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. Uh, yeah, right here in the front. Thank you. Um, going back to comments about um, literary truth, someone, and I can't remember who, and I can't remember where they did the study, um, but it's been published sometime in the last year, so I know everything definite about this, but um, that reading literature makes people more empathetic. Is this, is this something, does this say something about literature? Does this say something about empathy? Or does this say something about the person who did the study? <laughs> who would like to go for that one? Pascal, you brought it up. Well, it's, it's I think I, I, I can't really get into that uh, because it, it would be a huge, uh, another, um, another forum for European philosophy. Or maybe, uh, um, in the case of literature, uh, it's uh, everyone says that, that they learn things from 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 uh, reading reading literature, uh, and of course it's very hard to to sort of uh, figure out what what they learn. I mean, it, everyone has, is, seems to to get his uh, the, the, the message. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there the, there are certain things as as Simon mentioned, which. Uh, uh, about human nature, about uh, s- social world, and so on, 
which clearly uh, can be can be learned uh, from literary writings, even though uh, the the application of the concept of truth uh, is not easy in, in in that domain. And that's the same with with many other domains. I mean, um, it's it's hard to say that there are comic truths. For instance, is Charlie Chaplin uh, funnier than Groucho Marx? Uh, you don't know. I mean, it, certainly this, 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 there, are, there are domains where it's, it's very hard to... But what I wanted to say, uh, actually, uh, if I may say that in, uh, about literature itself, the concept of truth is not uh, kind of useless, as Simon seems to believe. Uh, it can be explanatory. You can... I mean, you can... You can it can be explanatory. For instance, think of the notion of meaning. Much of the notion of meaning has to do with whether the, the, the statements that you utter are true or not, and you learn something about about a statement when you learn uh, that it's true in what, what in what condition uh, it is true. Now, I would I would say the same with uh, literary truths. I mean, you certainly learn something about literature when you are able to say what kind of truth uh, it can convey. I, mean, I, I, I pretend that it is a much, use, a much more useful uh, idea than the, current, uh, the, the common idea that it is all fiction, that, it, that, that, that uh, there is no truth in there. So try to see what the contribution of truth is in su- such and such a domain. So my idea is reverse the order of priorities. Instead of kicking uh, truth out of the forum just uh, kick it back in okay let's uh, try and get time for one more question yeah the gentleman there that's you yep Uh, Yes, it seems to me that there are very serious problems with limiting our conceptions of truth to uh, correspondence coherence Uh, pragmatism and deflationism. I mean, if you look at the history of philosophy, the ancient Greeks, some of the ancient Greeks, thought that they had a method. Um, And, of course, here again, epistemology is not separable from the idea of truth. It's a question of what kind of epistemology you employ. So, for example, the sophists didn't have a method, but, but Plato, Aristotle, uh, and, and Socrates had a method. Well, we might have criticisms of their method, but they had a method. And then if we move nearer to our times, in German idealism, Hegel thought that he had a way of looking at reality in terms of everything being connected, something that analytical philosophy seems to have completely discarded. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that everything is connected and that we can make things, make sense of things in one domain, uh, partly by making sense of things in another domain. Um, you know, analytical philosophy seems to have discarded this, and we, instead we have these um, random uh, thought experiments which don't connect anything to anything else. But Hegel, on the other hand, says, no, you know, reality does make sense. 
Reality makes sense, but we have to apply the right philosophical method and the right epistemology and dialectics, uh, for one thing, in order to make sense of reality. So what I'm finding difficult to understand is the view that seems to be coming, particularly from Simon Blackburn, that your philosophical method um, has to be confined to one of these four competing uh, contemporary theories um, and is not linked to, to the gains that great philosophers have made in the history of philosophy. Okay, thanks very much. Well, this links into our third question, but Simon, would you like to quickly respond to that? Yeah. Um, I mean, Hegel did think that the world hung together as a big whole um, and the progress of spirit or self-consciousness would eventually... Um, get at least nearer to it, whether it will ever get to it is another matter. Um, and analytical philosophers, or certainly analytical philosophy in its inception, in the hands of people like Russell and Moore, was not very enamored of that idea. I'm not sure it was a very fruitful idea, actually. I mean, Hegel, um, Hegel certainly had his his school, as it were, the school of Hegel in the UK, in the United Kingdom, was, of course, uh, um, basically Bradley, Joachim, the absolute idealists, Collingwood. Um, And I'm not sure, I mean, nearly all philosophers you've ever heard of have got something worth saying. Um, And so a principle of charity is is always in place. Um, but But I'm not really sure that the Hegelian school came up with the goods. I mean, the pretensions were enormous. It was going to be to show that the world hung together in some kind of giant uh, um, bubble that made sense. Every, every part of the bubble supported every other part. Um, I'm not sure that we could re- retain that faith at the end of the 20th century. Um, I mean, Hegel thought that with freedom would come sort of progress and truth. I prefer Russell's idea that freedom for Hegel meant freedom to obey the police. (laughs) (laughs) We want to we want to um, rein it in because we're going to have to finish up in about twenty five minutes. But but Uh, I think just something: uh, truth is not the same thing as knowledge. It's not the same thing as method. It's not the the way to. It's it's distinct. I mean, so method is very important, but it's not the same thing as truth. Okay. Um, well, there is a general criticism that people sometimes do make about analytic philosophy that subjects are um, looked at in isolation from one another. So we can do something to defend analytic philosophy against that uh, criticism by asking the third question, which is what is really at stake in this debate? What uh, consequence does it have in uh, the rest of your philosophy if you take the more deflationist line that Simon's been arguing for or if you go for something more meaty and metaphysical that Pascal has been uh, suggesting. So, Pascal, would you be able to start us off and just perhaps say a little bit about how your thinking about truth has affected your views in other areas of philosophy? Um, Well, um, there are various sorts of, uh, as we could could call call them, truth connections. The concept of truth relates to many other concepts. As we already suggested, it relates to the concept of knowledge. It relates to the concept of being, 
possibly to the concept of existence. I mean, it's, it's very similar to the concept of existence in many ways. Many of the questions that we raised uh, about truth could be raised about the notion of existence. What is it to exist? Are there different kinds of existences? And so on. Uh, it's a central concept. Uh, I'm not completely sure that it can be fully defined. That is, I think of it more as a sort of nexus or a series of connections of concept, belief, truth, knowledge, which connect up together. Mm. Now, so is, is, is truth something like a sort of central station which goes, takes you to various sort of direction, uh, one to politics, one other to, to, to the social world? Well, uh, yes, in a sense, because it's, it's a concept which is central to our thought in general. But it's not easy to see exactly how it connects with uh, other matters. But we already started with that at the beginning of the conversation because everyone was asking things about the difference between truth and telling the truth. Maybe the truth is not affected by us because as the image as it, everyone knows that uh, truth is uh, down at the bottom of a, of a pit and she's naked, uh, bare, and waiting for us uh, to discover her. Uh, and even if, there, if we weren't there, uh, she would be there. Uh, and, of course, uh, Nietzsche uh, be, uh, said, beware of truth, uh, uh, imagine as a woman. But nevertheless, uh, there, is a, there is a problem of the relationship between truth and our inquiries, our methods, uh, uh, the, the, the way we know it, and about the value of truth. So I would say that there are certain issues in the sort of limited circle of the, uh, 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 of the philosophy of truth. Because, of course, if I take, take home the message uh, that Simon has given to us, there is not much to take home uh, with truth. Uh, just uh, take a very, very slim and shallow notion. I think there is more, especially... Uh, there, is a relation, there is a problem of the relationship between truth and value. Uh, is truth valuable or not? Some truths are valuable, some truths are not. I mean, it's certainly valuable to know whether the, 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 the building is on fire uh, when you want to get out of it, uh, whereas it's not, uh, well, uh, to, it's not valuable to know uh, how many uh, uh, g g grains of dust there are uh, on, on this table. Actually, there are very few. Um, and um, the, so, so uh, we, there is a problem of the relationship between truth and value. There is a problem of uh, how we uh, of the relationship between truth and what we might call the normative order, and it is there where I have also a dissent with with Simon. When you state something as a truth, when you assert something which of which you claim that it is true, you are already incurring certain kind of normative commitments. You incur the commitment of defending the truth that you have asserted against opponents. You, have, you incur the commitment that your truth is objective. If we are not relativists, you incur the 
the commitment to be able to, to, to say to, 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 that this truth could be sort of verified by everyone, uh, that it could be disproved if, it, if it's not a truth or shown to be a falsity. And in that respect, there is something which is very important uh, in, in, with respect to norms. That was actually what was important, that's, that's quite important in, in, in the domain of law, for instance. Uh, say the truth and only the truth, uh, especially in America, uh, but not in France, uh, politicians are supposed to tell the truth. Uh, and um, the, well, I, I would say about their private life. Um, so uh, uh, there the, 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 the are, are this sort of commitment. Now, of course, we can sort of broaden the picture and ask what is the relationship of theory, uh, knowing truth in general, with respect to practice. And of course, Simon has suggested that he's attracted by a very general pra uh, 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 practical spirit. But here I would also descend because uh, it seems to me that when in, to come back to the Dreyfus affair, I'm sorry I looked a bit obsessed, but it's a sort of test case. Uh, when intellectuals uh, at the time of the Dreyfus affair cared about truth, they didn't care simply for, uh, for whether uh, Dreyfus was guilty or not. They also cared about their role as inquirers to the truth. And so the question exists of whether uh, we should sort of have a theoretical life insulated or separated from the rest of social life, from the rest of uh, where truths are useful. Certainly, there is something which is false in pragmatism, which is the idea that truth is just the equivalent of something which is useful. It's just putting the cart before the horse, because actually things are useful because they are true. It's something which you said in one of your first books, uh, uh, and uh, that sounded for, to me as a revelation. <laughs> um, Simon, I expect you'd like to respond to that, uh, um, but also while, you, while you're doing it, perhaps you'll also explain, perhaps give some examples of where your thinking about truth has affected your thought in, in the rest of your philosophy. Right. Um, yeah, I think Pascal is uh, over-emphasizing the differences between us. A deflationist, of course, can be as serious a moralist or serious about the normative importance of assertion, um, the deflationist account of it is that the importance of sincerity, the importance of curiosity, the importance of not bullshitting, that is not talking as if you don't care whether what you say is true or false, uh, those importances, according to the deflationist, are all readily under understandable without, as it were, giving a metaphysical story in which truth has some kind of metaphysical shining light about it, which we all have to admire, because that's mysterious. Um, the deflationist says, look, um, there's a value to asserting that P, if and only if P. That is, there's a value to getting things right. Uh, and that means getting them true. The truth is um, that, uh, as it were, the building's on fire. It's true if and only if the building's on fire. Um, but it's valuable to think that the building's on fire if and only if the building is on fire, um, and so on across the board. Um, so there's nothing, there's nothing light-hearted or kind of postmodernist or relativist about deflationism. Deflationism tries to tell people why some truths are very important, why well, it's very important to, to get it right. 
So, so I, I, I would try and resist the, the idea that somehow deflationism consorts with a, a light-headed, anything-goes sort of postmodernist attitude. I don't think it does. Certainly my version doesn't. Um, how it relates to other pieces of philosophy? Well, uh, I mean, my own work in philosophy has largely been spent on the notion of moral truth in the, for the last 20 years or so, um, where I think um, it's, uh, it's very interesting to try to put together two thoughts. One is that morality isn't essentially about truth. Um, it sounds much more to do with practice, with desire. Um, if you think that something ought to be done, that is close to encouraging people to do it, to prioritize it, or uh, at the limit to prescribe that people prioritize it and do it. So morality is essentially a practical subject. Um, but as a practical subject, it's rather difficult to associate it with many of the thoughts that people have about truth. So the question arises, is there such a thing as ethical truth? And obviously the history of philosophy has been full of people who say there's not. Well, one of my own goals in philosophy has been to try to reconcile the idea of morality as essentially practical, which I think it is, um, with the idea that also it's quite right to talk about truth in connection with moral opinion. Um, that is, it's true. And furthermore, we know that it's true that it's wrong to stamp on blind babies for fun. Um, how many of you deny that? <laughs> Not a hand is raised. You all think that it's wrong to stamp on blind babies for fun, and so do I. Um, and so I think it's true that it's wrong to, because I'm a deflationist. I just add, it, add it's true. It's true that it's wrong. And furthermore, I think it's done and dusted. I don't think it's an open question. That is, there's no, um, there's no chink of darkness it would be. Can you have a chink of darkness? Yes. Well, anyhow, um, which might have a skeptic coming along and say, no, I think it's okay to stamp on blind babies for fun. Uh, if you think that, you're out of the conversation. You're, uh, as it were, beyond the pale. So, so I've been. I found it very important to get, to try to develop a concept of truth, which allows me to reconcile the idea of moral truth with the idea of the essentially practical nature of of moral opinion. And that, I think, is probably part of the reason why I've been less inclined to make truth something metaphysical, because I don't think morals has anything to do with metaphysics. This is another point of difference from Hegel. Okay, thanks very much. Um, okay, we've got about just over 10 minutes uh, to take uh, questions uh, on this. Uh, yes, sorry. The gentleman which has always left off the bearded white, as I asked several times. Where is this place? The bearded white, yep, white thank guy. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, um, please. Alexis Tsipras uh, uh, re recently commented in, in his triumph... Uh, sorry. Uh, Alexis Tsipras re recently commented, um, the Greek people have voted to end the vicious circle of austerity. The vicious circle of austerity is over, he, he repeated again. Um, I, I'm just wondering if... If really we haven't gone back far enough when um, uh, starting with Aristotle or Plato and Socrates, what about the very suggestive sort of insights that we get from the pre-Socratics? Wow. 
And on this idea of circularity, I'm thinking immediately of Xenophanes. You know, we create gods and idols in our own image. And by implication, we create societies, education, the whole lot in our own image. And Heraclitus, the world is not just flux, but uh, uh, flux and change, but flux with a logos, uh, something itself that enables change but doesn't change. And then we move, move on into the sceptics and Agrippa's trilemma, where we've got this choice between infinite regress or um, arbitrary uh, assertion, or again coming back to the, to the idea of circularity. And of course, this hugely influenced um, uh, German, German idealism, as, as was mentioned, and Hegel, Hegel too. Um, And from this, we have, the, uh, we have the problem, too, that what we don't know, we don't see. Um, I remember enjoying reading Simon's book on the big questions in philosophy, but some way he mentions that um, uh, there are no Vermeers anymore among us. Well, as someone who trained uh, ages ago um, in... Uh, in, in painting, and it's now a very minority, it's very much a minority pursuit. But uh, some of us were uh, uh, lucky enough to actually be taught what one might call the colour optics of Vermeer, as it was carried on by Cezanne, uh, a late Cezanne, of course, and then by Cubist, Delaunay, and then integrated into modernism. So the whole idea of colour optics, what I'm saying is that what... You know, this whole circularity seems very important, that there is a historical dynamic to truth, and I'm wondering whether we should uh, consider that a bit more. OK, Simon, perhaps you'd like to respond to that, <laughs> given that your book was mentioned. I can't remember what I said about Vermeer. Um, I, I, right. Um, well, I think I was lamenting the sad state of the visual arts in the contemporary world. Yeah. Um, oh, dear, circles. Yeah, I mean, um, look, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't work at this scale. I can't, I can't jump from the pre-Socratics to Cezanne very, very easily. Um, let me just try and say, I mean, Agrippa's trilemma is very interesting. This is a very important trilemma in the history of philosophy. Um, that is, uh, if an opinion is challenged, can you go back to something axiomatic, that you've got to take for granted, that's it. That's rock, as it were, solid. Uh, and that sounds like dogmatism. Or do you find yourself going around in a circle? And doesn't that somehow uh, um, destroy your title to have given a reason for whatever it is you believe in? Um, or finally, do you just give up and become a skeptic? Um, and deny that opinions can ever be one more reasonable than another. I mean, it's a famous, it's a famous problem in epistemology, and epistemologists take various ways out. Um, I don't think it really affects the notion of truth. Um, that is, it, what it really worries people about is the notion of knowledge of truth. Um, now, myself, I think that worry depends on a false view of knowledge, because I think... You, people claim knowledge when they claim a certain status, a status to call a question done and dusted. 
So if the sceptic comes along and says, yes, but how do you know, and goes on saying, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know, eventually the right response is, is dogmatic. Just say, sorry, I, I've lost interest. Um, <laughs> I, okay. Wittgenstein says at some point, um, you know, um, he's talking about our knowledge of other minds. He says that you just tried, try doubting in a real case that somebody in front of you who is in terrible pain is in pain. You can't do it. And his alter ego in, says, um, uh, do you mean your, that your eyes are shut in the face of doubt? And Wittgenstein just says, yes, they're shut. Um, in other words, this is a point at which you stop. You don't listen to the skeptic. You just go with the opinion that the person in front of you who's showing all the symptoms of pain is in pain. Gentleman with a purple jumper in the fifth row. That's, yep. Um, Simon mentioned this idea of a sort of spectrum where on one end you've got 2 plus 2 equals 4 in the middle you've got say history or economics the other end you've got uh, what you might call you know is this a good painting is this a bad painting Um, apologies I'll take it back to the dead baby example but obviously no one would say that is is a good thing but then how do you this is actually a question rather than a comment how do both of you then deal with the fact that regimes or certain forms of morality will lead to something like that? Would you, for example, say, I mean, uh, Pascal mentioned David Cameron is a good prime minister. It is true he's a good prime minister. Is it true he's a bad prime minister? So how would you sort of deal with the, the idea of a regime or a set of circumstances uh, which would then lead to that very specific wrong act where you can say this is it is true this is a wrong act how would you approach a question like that i'm not sure i get the question but uh, uh, if you are talking i mean there is a certain notion of regime of truth which has been used by some philosophers like michel foucault uh, and i think that this idea is a sort of relativistic idea in the sense that in certain domains you see, there is a certain kind of truth which is promoted in other domain uh, and also behind it there is the idea that there are various sort of rules of the game uh, sort of uh, uh, power relationships which sort of impose certain kind of uh, that's probably correct to say this. It's an historical fact. It happens even today, and there's probably probably David Cameron is within a regime of truth where uh, his opponent is not, and so on. But that's that's a confusion, it seems to me, on the part of Michel Foucault and others. They are they are confusing telling the truth or making people believe the truth in such and such a domain with truth itself. Uh, it's one thing to tell the truth. It's another thing whether what you say, uh, what you have told is true. So there are plenty of conditions under which we, uh, uh, we emit, we, we learn, we acquire, or we, re- we reject truth. Th- these conditions have nothing to do with truth itself. And actually, I would answer exactly the same, the same thing to the uh, Hegelian gentlemen who are uh, uh, at, at the 
on, on the other side of, of, the, of the room. Uh, if you're in Hegelian, you confuse truth and thought. You believe that reality and thought are the same. So it's quite normal that you consider, for instance, that there is a dynamics of truth in history, or that you consider that there is an history of truth. But as the Cambridge philosopher G.E. Moore said, I mean, there is no history of truth. The, the concept of truth is everywhere the same. So Simon would say it's very simple. I'm saying it is more complex than he believes, but nevertheless, uh, it's it's a permanent concept. It's it, it's it's not something which changes with regimes. I mean, uh, uh, and that that raises a question. That raises an interesting question about something which we have not talked at all uh, in in that meeting, which is the relationship between truth and democracy. When we are dealing with various countries in the world, globalization. Globalization actually is a sort of child. Uh, relativism is a child of globalization because we see that that we have access to information from wherever there are humans to, to talk. Uh, we 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 ask whether, for instance, about whether the, the concept of democracy can be exported. Well, I would say about truth, exactly the same thing, uh, about democracy as a concept of, of, of truth. I mean, of course, there are various conditions of democracy in various domains, but if there is such a thing as democracy, it's everywhere the same. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think I, I've never been sure what Foucault meant by regimes of truth. I, um, I mean, I... I take it to be a slightly Nietzschean thought, the thought that there are no facts, only interpretations. Um, but just, just, just to establish my credentials as a serious thing, I'd like to finish with a, uh, an anecdote from, uh, from Bernard Williams. Bernard Williams tells a nice story about the end of the, um, I think, the Versailles Peace Conference. And um, somebody came up, I think it was to Clemenceau, was he? Uh, at, at yes, the, that was Clemenceau. At Clemenceau. And um, said, you know, in a sort of Nietzschean frame of voice, I wonder what future historians are going to make of this. And Clemenceau is supposed to have replied, they won't say that Belgium invaded Germany. (laughs) 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 And um, I think that's a very important point, that however relativist or interpretationist or regimes of truthy you feel, um, there are judgments which are fixed. And... um, uh, of course, that can sound like dogmatism, but uh, if it's dogmatism, I think it's a healthy form of dogmatism. It's just you've got to be careful about what you take as fixed. At that point, I'm afraid we'll have to bring the event to a close. It just remains to thank very much our two participants. Thank you very much.